Hey friends, before we get going today, I want to share a story with you. Halfway There started way back in 2016. And as I was going um, and, and kind of trying to find guests early on, there was somebody who I looked up to quite a bit. And uh, because I, I didn't know their story and then I heard they published a book about it and it was really, uh, I thought, man, that's a great fit. And I reached out and uh, way back then uh, in 2016, I didn't actually hear anything and I never was able to make that connection. Well, I learned, one thing I learned through podcasting is to go ahead and uh, just be tenacious. Go ahead and ask again. Uh, find another way to go about it. Um, and so that's what this represents. For me, this episode, it's a special one because it's episode number 300. And this guest is that guy that I wanted to have on the show way back in 2016. I'm so grateful that I didn't interview him back then because you know what? I wasn't as good at it as I am today. I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did uh, when we had this conversation. So, uh, that's all just a little bit of context. It's episode 300. Please celebrate with me, man. If you would go ahead, share this episode, send it out there. Um, uh, you know, whatever you want to do, that would mean an awful lot to me and what this show, um, you know, means to, to, to you. So anyway, um, I'm really excited about this episode. Hey, let's get it going. All right. You're listening to halfway there. Episode number 300. Andrew Clavin and the truth and beauty. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I am delighted that you've downloaded and that we uh, are going to hang out for the next however long this takes. Uh, it's going to be great. I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, in fact, it's one I've been eager to have for a long time, so I, I know that you will. Uh, if you do, would you do me one favor? The, the best thing you compliment you can give uh, is to just share this episode with a friend, right? So send a text, share it on social media, tag me. I would love that. And if you're so inclined, go to halfwaythereapodcast.com. You can hit that Patreon button and support the show. That means a lot and helps us keep running as well. Uh, friends, This our guest today, let's just dive right in because I know that it's going to be great. He's an award-winning writer, screenwriter, and media commentator. In fact, he was one of my favorites back in the day when I was trying to write a political blog. I wasn't very good at it, but I used to do that. And uh, that's why I wanted to talk to him. Um, he's an internationally best-selling novelist. And he's got all these all these awards. We'll talk about all of that. But he's also got, got a new book called The Truth and Beauty. We'll talk about that as well. Our guest is Andrew Clavin. Andrew, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you kindly. Nice to be here. I'm so excited to uh, to have you. I kind of hinted at it in my introduction, but yeah, you were one of my guys back in the day when I was trying to trying to do uh, to write about Christians and politics, and I quickly found out I was not nearly as good as guys like you. So that's. <laughs> oh, oh. You seem uh, to have found your way. That's I think so. This is spiritual formation is kind of much more my jam. So anyway, I welcome. So I've been your kind of a follower of you for a long time, but you're you're writing and you're at the at the Daily Wire. Is that yeah. right? And you're you're doing podcasts. So tell me all about kind of where God has you right now. Well, uh, right now I I have this podcast that I was doing at the Daily Wire four days a week. I cut it back uh, to one day a week so I could get back to uh, more writing. 
Um, I'm continuing to write mystery stories and crime stories, which is what mm. I've always done and what I love. Uh, but I've recently begun writing a lot more nonfiction, including this book, The Truth and Beauty. And um, it has just been a joy. It really has. It's been a, it's been a joy, first of all, to gather, to speak to people, you know, to talk to people directly. I spent most of my life, uh, the first half of my life alone. You know, writing is a very solitary profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was spent hours and hours in a room by myself. I only stumbled, really was guided, I guess, by God into this public life, which was very alien to me. And yet now I've kind of gotten used to it. And I'm very uh, glad to be having an interchange with people and to hear what they're worried about and what they're thinking about and to be able to address it more directly. So it's really been a great journey that it's been an absolute shock to my system. I have to tell you, Uh, the Daily Wire started about six, six years ago, seven years ago with me and Ben Shapiro and uh, our friend Jeremy Boring uh, in Jeremy's pool house, just uh, uh, on a card table, the two of us doing, me and Ben doing these podcasts. And now, of course, it's a huge, uh, you know, communications company. It's been great to be part of that journey. And uh, it's been all incredibly exciting and strange. Yeah, isn't it interesting? One of the things I talk about all the time is how amazing it is to be able to get your message out um, with, with podcasting and other things, the gatekeepers don't have to, you know, don't have to keep you, keep you down, right. Or keep you, keep you out or censor what you're saying. Yeah. And I've never been a big favorite of the gatekeepers. Uh, I, I worked, <laughs> I had a, as a writer, right? Yeah. I had a, a very successful Hollywood career. And so I started opening my mouth yeah. and saying what I thought, and then I was kind of thrown out of town. <laughs> so it, it is nice to be free of that. Indeed. Okay. Well, good. Well, so uh, I want to go through your story and come out and, and just listen to how uh, you got here, right? So here the your journey of your life with God. Um, and then we'll talk definitely about the truth and beauty as well. Um, so I know that you, you grew up uh, Jewish, right? Or, and, and yes. you were, you were an atheist. Tell us kind of that story, what that was, well, what that was like for you. Well, I grew up in a, a suburban, you know, kind of a classic, 50s, 60s uh, suburb, the kind you see if you watch old uh, situation comedies. And uh, it was a classic American suburb, except for the fact that most of us were Jewish. I mean, it was about 50% Jewish. And uh, I, I grew up immersed in Jewish ritual and teaching. My father was very concerned that we continue in the traditions. So I went to Hebrew school. I was bar mitzvahed. But at the same time, my parents were not really didn't believe in God. I mean, my mother was Hmm. perhaps the most convicted uh, atheist I've ever met. I mean, she just thought the entire thing was absolutely ridiculous and would say, you know, she didn't even care about it one way or the other, uh, just shrugged it off. My father had more of a sort of that relationship people have with God where he didn't want to get in his offend him because he was afraid God would would take it out on him. But I don't know if he really believed in in either case. uh, There was no prayer in my house. There was no talk about Mm. God. There was no discussing God. There was only a discussion about these rituals and these traditions. And so ultimately, I found that extraordinarily empty. I found it to be uh, you know, as beautiful and as elaborate and as uh, meaningful as the Jewish tradition is, it meant nothing to yeah. me because there was no God in it. I didn't know why are we speaking this foreign language? Why are we wearing these funny hats? You know, what, what did it all mean? And um, and I became very alienated from it. And when I was 13, 
Uh, I was bar mitzvahed much against my protest. I didn't want to be. I hated doing it. I hardly studied for it at all. I ad-libbed some of my bar mitzvah because I forgot the Hebrew because uh, we started <laughs> making up Hebrew-sounding words. Um, and I did that in Hebrew class too. Yeah, I know it was it was ridiculous, <laughs> you know. And uh, at the same time, uh, because it was a well-to-do neighborhood, I was given elaborate presents, all kinds of gold watches and chains and necklaces and all kinds of savings bonds and all this stuff. And I was very proud of this. It was kind of the first money I'd ever had to myself. And it was probably thousands and uh, thousands of dollars. And wow. I kept it in this leather box. But over the months, uh, I began to feel very alienated from it because I felt that I had lied. I felt that I had gotten up in front of people and said, now I am part of this Jewish tradition. And I wasn't. I didn't care about it. It was empty to me because there was no God in it. And so I felt I'd lied. And one night uh, when everybody was asleep in my house, I snuck out and I uh, took this leather box full of uh, guilt and I uh, stuffed it in the garbage, uh, you know, and buried it deep down in the garbage so no one would find it before the garbage men came to take it away. Um, and many, sometimes, especially Jewish people who get angry at conversion stories for perfectly valid reasons, uh, they frequently say, well, why didn't you give it to charity? I was right. no more capable of forming that thought in my, my disturbed, highly disturbed 13-year-old mind than I was of uh, anything else. I mean, I was a very troubled kid, and uh, my relationship with my family was dysfunctional without appearing dysfunctional. But that was the end of religion for me. I was done. Uh, I just thought mm. this is a horrible feeling. It's hypocritical, and it's just the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, and kind of felt like my mother kind of got this right. Um, but I did, the one thing I did know about myself was that I wanted to be a writer and that I loved writing. I loved especially detective writing, uh, you know, tough guy writing, because I was looking mm -hmm. for male role models and I found them in the kind of honorable uh, tough guys, the guys like uh, Philip Marlowe by Raymond Chandler and the Hemingway characters who were looking for meaning in life, no matter what kind of corruption surrounded them. And that's what I wanted to be like. But as I read those books, I started to realize that a lot of them were based on the King Arthur stories, the request stories. Uh, they would make reference to the quest. Uh, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises is based on the quest for the Holy mm -hmm. Grail, the cup that uh, you know Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. Uh, the... Um, Philip Marlowe stories, which were my favorites, were all about being a knight. You know, he was always, Marlowe was compared to being a knight uh, in this corrupt city of Los Angeles. And so I started to read the, the King Arthur stories, which I loved, but I sort of realized they were all kind of suffused with Christian mythos. And so really out of literary curiosity, because I'm a very dogged person who wants to know everything about what I'm doing, I started to read the Gospels, which I, we didn't have a, a New Testament in my house. I had to go out and get one. Uh, and uh, I just started wanted to know what this was about. And I started reading. When was that? I was 15. I was 15. You're 15. Okay. Um, and um, it was the 60s. It was kind of a wild time. And I was lying in bed on my bed reading the book of Luke because it had the Christmas story in it. So I recognized something of it and I just seemed familiar to me. So I started reading it. And my father walked in on me and um, he was furious. Uh, the idea that I had brought Christianity into our house, that I might be reading this Bible with some idea of, uh, of converting, which I had no thought of at the time whatsoever. Uh, he was furious. And uh, I, this always makes me laugh because at 15, uh, I was sexually active. Uh, he could have walked in on me with a girl. He could have walked in on me, certainly reading about girls, uh, but he walked in on me reading uh, the book of Luke and he was just absolutely uh, furious. <laughs> uh, and he told me, he said, if you ever even think of converting, I will disown you. I will, you know, you, you, we're done. And, but I, 
it meant nothing to me because I, it was all about literature to me and it continued to be about literature. But as I went forward, that raised certain problems to me. I saw that Christ and the gospels were at the center of everything I loved about the culture. Uh, all, everything that I found true, everything that I found beautiful was represented in literature by Christ. So when I would read wow. Dostoevsky and he turned my life around by convincing me that moral relativism, which was just then becoming a thing, but he convinced me that moral relativism was wrong, uh, there was Christ. Uh, when I would look at great stories of sacrifice and redemption, you know, Christ was there. And so I started to really wrestle with the fact that he was at the center of all this. And then um, in the middle of this, in my late twenties, um, I went nuts. I went insane. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, uh, there's really no other way to put it. I mean, I really became delusional. Uh, I became, uh, you know, uh, frozen and crippled by, uh, uh, hypochondria and by in just the inability to do any kind of good work. And, um, it was, it was just dreadful. And that was the moment when you would have thought that I would have reached out for God, but I didn't believe in him. And I thought to reach out for God when you're in pain is an act of complete cowardice. You know, this is that was mm. kind of the twisted way that I was thinking when, wow. when you need him most uh, that you shouldn't reach for him because that would be a lie, you know. Um, but by the grace of God, I, I found a, a psychiatrist who performed what I now believe to be a miracle. I really do. I've never met anybody who went that crazy and that saying, I've never met anybody else who had the experience wow. in the course of really a very short period of therapy. I mean, ultimately, it was about five years, but really the difference came in a, a year uh, when I went from being suicidal uh, and miserable and frozen and delusional uh, to being kind of happy and, you know, effective in the world and able to write and able to succeed and everything changed. Um and it was only then that I started to think to myself, well, all the logic that brought me to God in the first place, the fact that he was at the center of everything, I thought was true and beautiful, that remains in place now that I'm happy. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, after a long time, and now we're talking, we're covering a period now, I'm, I'm now in my 40s. Uh, when I was in my 40s, I started to pray. And um, this was a, a watershed. Um, yeah. I, I, st I started to pray just in a kind of offhanded way and that changed my life. And, um, and so <laughs> over about five years of prayer and I wasn't praying to Jesus, I, you know, I wasn't praying to any image of God, just talking to someone I became more and more convinced was actually there. Um, and my life was transformed. I mean, in, in the course of wow. that, uh, I went from being sane and happy, which the psychiatrist had done for me, uh, acting in God's place, I believe. But but then in direct talks with God, I became joyful and incredibly mm -hmm. productive. And finally, I just had a moment when I was driving uh, in the California hills near my house. And I, I said to God, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say anymore. I'm, you've changed my life entirely. I'm a, I'm a different person. You know, I'm a different person through prayer, through exchange with you. I don't know how to respond because you're God and I'm just some schmo, you know, sitting here, yeah. I go, you know, to coming and going, what can I do to respond? And it was then that God, it, it, it wasn't a voice. It's hard to really uh, recreate what it was. It was just an absolute certainty that I should be baptized. <laughs> I remember oh, driving wow. in my car and I said, you got to be kidding me I, out loud. I said, you got to be kidding. Me. Why would I do that? You know, why would I be baptized? I mean, I was at that point, a successful Hollywood screenwriter. I had a novel writing career. Uh, I had made peace with my father after years of aggravation with each other. 
all of that I thought would be blown up by uh, being baptized. And so I went through this very, this is what my, my memoir is about, The Great Good Thing. It's a yeah, yeah. story of this five months of just asking myself questions. Did I get this right? You know, what am I, what was I thinking? Why, why did I think I have to be bad? Why did God tell me I have to be baptized? And going back and rereading the Bible, which I'd been reading all this time as literature and just thinking, well, what happens if you read it as if it's true? You know, that would, that right. would be a different experience. Uh, and of course, at the end of five months, I thought, oh yeah, this is what I believe. This, this is the God I'm praying to. And uh, I, kind of, I kind of was baptized with this little bit of a, uh, an escape clause, which is that if I go nuts, if, I, if I'm baptized and it turns out that I become one of these happy Christians who's always saying how blessed I am, and <laughs> if I can't write good mystery stories anymore because everything has to be clean and G-rated, uh, oh. I'll, I'll back out, you know, I'll get out. Um, but it, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, it transformed my writing for the better. It made me a far more realistic person. This was the big shock. You know, I had kind of thought that oh, being a man. Christian would make me an idiot, you know, and, and make me this kind of fantasist uh, where all problems are solved by God. You know, those movies where everybody's, oh, uh, yeah. Those are the worst. I, <laughs> man, I've got friends who make Christian movies and we argue about it. And I'm just like, stop. Like, I don't need, life doesn't always work out, right? Like, God, I, I think God of them as rom-coms for Christians that like, I know women like these rom-coms and everything works out in the end and that's, it makes them happy. And I think that's nothing wrong with that as yeah. long as you realize it's not reality, but it's not. And I wanted to write more realistic things. And uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was just a wonderful experience. My baptism, I mean, three weeks after my baptism, my yeah. wife turned to me and she said, you've totally changed. You're like another person. I've never seen you this serene. I've never seen you uh, this calm about everything and joyful. And it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. The change that came over you. Um, and, and she has said that to me recently again, as my Christian journey has continued. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a beautiful experience, just an absolutely wow. great experience. Is she, yeah. So she sees that change. I don't, I don't know if your wife is a believer. I don't know. Is that my wife, my wife is a theist and a, I would call her a, I would, you know, she goes to a Christian church and I would call her, okay. yeah, you know, her theology, I, I think is a little vaguer and she's happy with that. Uh, but she was a complete atheist too. Mm. Um, she wanted to believe, but couldn't until her mom died and she, her mother died in her arms. Mm. And she said, I saw her leave. I saw Oh wow! that, you know, yeah. And she came back from that. Uh, she came back from that. It was, she was almost glowing. It was an amazing experience. Uh, she came back in a kind of trance. Um, and for three days, every word out of her mouth was loaded with wisdom. Uh, she would say wow. things to me and I would think like, wow. You know? And from that point on, she was a believer. And so, yes, we, okay. we have different approaches to, to it, but we are both believers. Yeah, no interesting. Uh, okay. So what I love about the story, I mean, obviously you covered a lot of ground and it, it took a long time, but I love to hear those stories of transformation because it like it's easy for you to recount it in 15 minutes, right? But it take yeah. it took it took 40 years, right? Like that's, I was, that's it, a it, long it time. Was, I was 49 when I was baptized. Yeah. I mean, it was a real uh journey. because um, you know, you start out as a secular Jew and you're a sophisticated artist type hanging out in New mm -hmm. York and LA, and th there's no reason for you to do that. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so uh, and I'm I'm really fascinated by several points in the story. Certainly, that you were already fascinated with the Gospels as literature when you were when you were a kid. Like that's really interesting that you were kind of into that already, and and seeing that there is something here that Jesus is already kind of the center of everything that you're that you're reading and enjoying. Um, and the, the your experience while while uh, driving as well. 
just describing that God was there, right? He said, so he, he, maybe he didn't say something to you, but he communicated to you. Right? There's no that you, question. That you just yeah. knew. Yeah. I find that fascinating, those stories, because even though they defy words, they're very, very real. Like we, we experience them. How do you make sense of that? how do you, as a, well, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this funny experience I had when I wrote my memoir, which was just this story that I just told you elaborated, elaborated in much more detail and everything, but I finished it and I'm writing the story, which to me was about me. You know, it was about me uh, kind of holding to certain things that I think have served me very well. One, the idea that things make sense, that you can't just talk nonsense. The words have to describe something that yep. holds together. The world makes sense. And, and another being that I sort of knew that something was wrong with me, you know, that there's some, something was missing and I followed that. And that's what I thought the story was. I got to the end of the book and I reread it and, you know, going through it to edit and everything. And Christ was there on every page, even the pages that were about my childhood. And he was there in these hilariously yeah. obvious ways. So a, a person that I never, it never occurred to me that her name was Chris, spelled C-H-R-I-S-D, who, you know, played an important role. A, a nurse came in when my wife was giving birth and uh, and she was in trouble mm -hmm. and the nurse came in and sort of gave us peace and everything. Her name was Cristiano. It was, it was wow. dopey stuff like that. You know, it was just this kind of uh, like, you know, little blinking light. Here I am, here I am. And I realized the story wasn't about me at all. You know, the story was, in mm. fact, uh, I was the object of the story, not the subject of the story. I was being shaped and formed. And, and that really, that realization, um, that my memoir came out maybe six years ago, and that realization has been the next stage in my journey, the, real, the realization that every difficult thing that happened to me, things that have, have scarred me uh, and have directed my life has been used for the good. Um, without my understanding it, without my knowing it, without my really doing anything about it. I mean, my wife and I, who have had this insanely romantic, loving marriage for for 42 years, I think, in May, um, you know, we've had one argument, we've had one fight, you know, it, wow. about 35 years ago, it lasted about 15 seconds. Um, and we've just been devoted, we did everything wrong. Like people ask me for my advice. I say, don't ask me because I did everything wrong. But God would just take each thing and sort of say, yeah, you know, you're going down that road. I'm just going to turn that road around a little bit. And so um, it, it's changed. That has also changed my understanding of my role in my own life uh, and, mm. and how, you know, God is kind of the artist and you're just the work, you know? Yeah. Do you relate to that as an author? Because you're obviously a, like a fiction author. You're, you kind of play that, that God role in your, when you're writing. Very much so, especially as a novelist, uh, you know, screenwriting is, is a little different because so many people put the actual product together. But as a novelist, you are a godlike figure in your imagination. Uh, and you have this relationship to these characters that is that you can't make them do what you want them to do without violating their characters. So you mm. have to let them do what they're going to do. Uh, but you know that that's going to lead certain places. And so you take them there. Uh, it's this very interesting interaction uh, that you're in. If they insist on going into a bad place, they're going to go into a bad place. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's like, we'd just be unreal. You know, the audience, you'd lose your audience if you said, well, yeah, this guy is obviously going down the drain, but I'm going to make sure he's saved. The audience would say, no, I don't buy that. That's not the way life works. Uh, right. So yeah, you, you do get, uh, you know, uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was a mystery writer and also 
also famously a theologian, wrote very beautiful kind of C.S. Lewis kind of works. She wrote a, a book called The Mind of the Maker, uh, in which she compared uh, God's role in your life to the uh, role oh, of a novelist or an artist. Yeah, That's probably one I should read. It's good. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask about was the your psychiatrist. You said your psychiatrist kind of also played played God for you in some ways. Like he helped you understand. What do you think that transition or that transformation was about? And how do you how do you understand that and what God was doing? Well, I I believe uh, both as a son and a parent that your parents are the role that they play in your life is to manifest. Uh, your creator to you. They are your creators here and they manifest mm-hmm. your creator to you both in his, in his male and female uh, parts, which we know he has because he created us in his image, male and female. Um, and, and that's their role. And that's the only way I can explain that we, why we know what they're supposed to be like. I mean, you could give an evolutionary kind of just so story about why we know our mothers should be nurturing uh, because obviously we have this physical connection where they nurture us physically. Right. Um, but you can't explain why you expect your father to be just and why you know he has failed you when he's unjust uh, and why you try to talk, tell yourself children who are abused by their fathers, try to tell themselves that they're bad. Uh, because they want so much for their fathers to be just because they know God is just and they so they convince themselves that their abusive father is really right. Um, and and so hmm. I, I had a, a difficult relationship with my father. He was not a bad man in the least. He was a very troubled man. Uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, broken as we all are. And he didn't know how to adjust that. And he, he really didn't like me very much because I was stubborn and independent. Uh, and, um, in a way his abuse of me was helpful because it kept me, it let me break free of his worldview, but it also left me damaged. It left me damaged in, uh, in being with him. And my psychiatrist manifested that fatherly uh, thing for me in a new way. And I sort of relived my youth, my childhood with him and kind of went back into my childhood and, and re grew up with him. Um, the, he was, uh, he too was a secular Jew. And uh, I have to say the only time I ever said anything that surprised him, I mean, I told him every ugly fantasy that had ever gone through my mind. I told him every sexual thing I'd ever done. I told him every single thing. The only time I ever surprised him was years after our therapy was finished. I went back and told him that I'd been baptized and his jaw dropped uh, because wow. that he didn't see that coming at all. And he didn't realize that the reason, one of the, not the reason, but one of the reasons, one of the things that led me to that was that I realized that all the Freudian stuff he and I had been talking about was untrue. Uh, <laughs> a lot of what I had thought had cured me had not been what had cured me. And so I asked myself, well, what had cured uh-huh. me? And I realized it was his love. It was the love I felt for him and the love he actually, I'm, I'm quite certain, came to feel for me. And that uh, when I started to think about that, I thought, well, you know, what does that, what does that mean? And kind of came yeah. to this understanding of fathers and, and mothers and, and children uh, that really served me well. Oh, that's really interesting. It was the love that, that helped transform you, right? Like, is the relationship, any good therapist will tell you this, except for the, yeah. except for the strict Freudians who think there's something that they know that they don't know. know. Uh, but, but the, but the best therapist will tell you it's the relationship that changes. Yeah. Well, the Beatles got some things right, right? Uh, all, all you need is love. That's <laughs> exactly. I, it's con- more complicated, but a little bit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I do, I do, uh, I do think sometimes it is that simple. Like the love is the pinnacle of the spiritual journey, right? That is, yeah. that is where we're going. God is defines Himself as love, and so that's a like it matters. Um, interesting. Okay, so 
I always we, I love to talk about how you how you found Christ and then also how you kind of I call it learning the way of Christ, learning the mm. way of Jesus, right? So, um, would you talk about in the truth and beauty a little bit? Because I think yeah. you're uh, I read in the introduction you're asking these questions of like, Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense to me, and you're trying to understand it, and you come to understand it through some of the poets, so um, the English poets. So tell us tell us some more some about that and how that came about for you. Well, one of the weird advantages, you know, sometimes I used to go to God and say, why did you let me, I, I found such joy in Christ, uh, you know, such a, such an elevation of creativity and originality and awareness and gusto and joy that I sometimes would go to God and say, why did you let me take so long? You know, I just, you know, I, I, you know, I used to say, I know I'm a Jew, but why'd you let me wander in the wilderness for 40 years <laughs> until I found right? you, you know? And, um, and I, I decided that the reason for that was that he wanted me to go down every wrong philosophical road so uh -huh. that when I heard them from other people, I could say, yeah, I, I've been there down that and I can tell you where the road ends, you know, and that's really been really useful, and especially in my talking to college kids and things like that. But also when you come, when you're not a cradle Christian, when you come so far to get there, you're not afraid to ask God questions. You're not afraid to say like, you know, love my enemies. Like, I don't even like my enemies. And not only that, but a lot of times, not only do I not want to do the things that Jesus is telling me to do, I'm not sure I should. You know, I'm not sure that when you say, turn the other cheek, that that's right, you know. So I was talking to my son about this. And he said to me, you know, you're trying to understand a philosophy, but mm -hmm. you should be trying to get to know a man. And that's what the truth and beauty is about, is my attempt to go back to the Gospels and try to understand Jesus as a man so that you know, because when you know someone, you don't think, I don't think, what's my wife's philosophy of life? I, you know, I never ask myself the question. What I say to myself is, oh, if my wife were here, she'd love this, or she'd be really angry at this. Or if I say this, it's really going to annoy her, or it's going to please her. You know, I understand who she is. And that's the way I wanted to feel about Jesus. And I feel this journey that I describe in The Truth and Beauty is has really helped me with that. Um, but it, that has been a real journey for me, because I'm not happy with pieties. Um, you know, just things that Christians say that they think make them sound virtuous or whatever they think, you know, yes. um, and, and I get attacked a lot for believing Jesus, uh, and taking him seriously. So Christians attack me, for instance, I'll say, well, you know, Jesus actually said, judge not lest you be judged and Christians again and again, they say, well, what he meant by that. And I, they always lose me right there. Like I sort yep. of hear a, a buzz after that. Cause I think he's the word of God. He probably meant exactly what he was saying. <laughs> you know, right. Just let me guess, you know, I'm just guessing here, but like I'm thinking, and, and then you have this real problem. What does that mean not to judge people? I mean, obviously you have to judge, you know, is a person honest or dishonest? Is it wrong to murder somebody? You know, those are judgments we can make, but, but really I think that the exercise of not judging people's spiritual life, not judging where they stand in relation to God, what God thinks of them uh, is a huge, uh, move in coming closer to them and loving your neighbor as yourself, which is another thing I take very seriously. Um, most importantly, I have to tell you, the, th the thing that I get alienated from churches, uh, the thing that alienates me from churches, is I feel like they don't really believe mm -hmm. in how big a thing this is. Yeah. I mean, this is this is not like a, it's not, not even a Mel Gibson movie, you know, it's, or, <laughs> let alone one of those old, you know, Cecil B. DeMille movies. This is the creator of the universe uh, interfering in human history, entering human history. Uh, he didn't do that to tell us to be nice. He didn't do that to tell us to put, you know, more money in the collection plate when it goes by. He must have been trying to really change 
the trajectory of people's lives. And so, uh, you know, when people say, you know, like, be good, don't do this, don't sleep with this one, you know, don't have sex that way. I always think like, okay, you know, I think, I, I think that trying to get past your, uh, your flesh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. is, 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 is something you have to do first and clear things away. But that can't be the point because I already knew I should be a nice guy. You know, I, I know I already, I didn't need God to die on a cross to tell me not to cheat on my wife, you know, like she'd kill me. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I, already, I already know that's a bad idea. So what is it, you know, what is this big thing that he's trying to do? And it's been so, that journey has been so transformative that I, I think I must be onto something because every time I, I feel like I hit it right, um, I, I feel my joy increases, by which I'm, I don't mean happiness. I mean, my gusto in life, my yeah. verb in living, you know, that. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's, there's at least two things there that I want to comment on and draw out because I love what you said about, um, you know, being, not being a cradle Christian and not being afraid to ask him questions. And I, do you think that also comes from some of your Jewish background? Yes. I, I mean, because like, you guys are great at this. Like, like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, it, it doesn't Israel means I think it means like struggling with God or, or it means something. one who wrestles with God, like someone who like wrestles God, with God, which and, is fantastic. But evangelical Christians, which is where I grew up. Yeah. We don't like that at all. No. I mean, well, it's, it's hilarious because Abraham is basically finds God in one chapter and the next chapter, God says, well, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham He's starts arguing. to starts to say, well, if I find 50, if I find 25 good people, if I find 10, and I, and I always want God to say, I turned you into a Jew one chapter ago, and already you're <laughs> bargaining with me. <laughs> right. But this is, this is the relation, the kind of natural relationship, a sort of a familiarity uh, with your father, you know, and I mean, I think when Jesus is saying Abba, he's re- reflecting on that. Uh, he's reflecting that to people yes. uh, that, that God is really close. He's, you know, he loves you intensely. And he's very close to you. He's not up there, you know. It's he's not up there in the sky with his on his throne with his big white beard. He's actually right here. Uh, and I think that um, yeah, there is a certain a certain amount of of humor that that comes, you know, I with it comes with uh, a Jewish relationship with God and a certain amount of familiarity. And I think I do reflect that. Yeah, yeah I think that's something I I just wanted to highlight for our friends listening because. It's okay. I talk a lot about Habakkuk because it's my favorite book in, uh, maybe not the entire Bible, but certainly in the Old Testament because I love his, you see that relationship where he's like, hey, I, I don't like the corruption going on, but God says, okay, don't worry, I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then he goes, uh, hey, I hate that. I don't want, like, that's not okay. <laughs> They're worse than we are. And uh, God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of them too. And then Habakkuk has this moment of just absolute surrender and one of the most beautiful poems uh, in of worship at the end there, that's just beautiful. But you know, you don't that seldom gets captured in a worship service that uh, on Sunday morning. So yeah. I like to point that out for people. So you were looking for the words of Jesus through the words of the poets, uh, the English poets, and you were you kind of you draw that out. Tell us why did they speak to you and what what you found. Well, that actually happened. It happened actually the other way around. That what okay. I did was I, I decided that to get to know Jesus, what I should do is forget everything else. That I should forget uh, theology, forget Paul, uh, forget anything that anyone ever said about Jesus, and just read the Gospels as if they were a novel uh, with a main character, or as if they were an autobiography or a biography. And just thought, who is this guy? Who, you know, what, what is he talking about? What does he see that I'm not seeing? What is, what is he experiencing? What, 
you know, if I'm in a situation, how can I know what he would think of that situation? I, I actually taught myself Greek, though. I, as I say, I taught yeah. myself Greek very badly uh, so I could read it in the oldest language we have it in. And, uh, and, and, you know, the people get angry at me because like, like Catholics especially get angry about the fact that, you know, I, I say like, I can't find any clue of the perpetual virginity of Mary in, right. in the story. And they say, what, but, but even Catholics admit that's not in the gospel. So that was the only thing I was looking at. Uh, so I'm not, you know, arguing, I'm not in a theological argument with them. I'm simply telling them this experience. But as I had this experience, <clears throat> these lines from the poets and these attitudes from the poets and these thoughts from the poets kept coming into my mind. Hmm. And I thought like, oh, yeah, that he's saying the same thing as, as Wordsworth was saying here. He's saying what Keats, he's kind of telling you this experience that Keats describes in this poem. And it kept happening to me. And when I thought about it, when I thought it through, I kind of thought about the fact that these poets, I, these are the romantic, the English romantic poets, and only a certain number of them, only a certain segment of them, plus the uh, English romantic novelist, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and in doing so invented the science fiction yeah. genre. Um, and the thing is, they were living at a time almost exactly like ours, a time when radical politics had transformed the world, uh, when it, there was no going back, even though people had to go forward in a new way. Uh, and, and there was a lot of a lot of this, I think, was keyed around a loss of faith. This is the, the period when people would start to say God has vanished from the world. God is dead uh, because science was exploding, because the old uh, the French Revolution and the American Revolution had questioned old loyalties, uh, had questioned the, the uh, divine right of kings, and all of this had destroyed the firm foundation of faith, including the Reformation had destroyed the monopoly that the Catholic Church had, uh, which also uh, undermined faith in a, in a way. And, and so they were, these guys were faced with the task of rebuilding the human experience. I mean, that sounds big, but it is what they were doing. They were trying yeah. to rebuild the human experience to include their own psychology, which nobody had really thought about before. And nobody mm -hmm. had really thought about the human mind as being a psychological construct uh, that's not just one thing. It's actually, you know, many different forces working on it. And, and I thought Jesus obviously saw that. He obviously saw that people were having an experience and their experience in life was part of the experience of creation. And, and that's why I think these guys, they don't change what Jesus says. They simply uh, annotate it. Yeah. They, you know, they give you a mm. new way of seeing in it, seeing it, especially if you've been repeating it forever, but you're not really feeling it. You're not really getting it. You don't really understand it. Uh, when you see it this way, I think it really helps. It helped me anyway, to say like, oh, I, I get what he's saying. I get what yeah. he sees and what he's trying to get us to see. So give me an example. What's one, something that you didn't understand, but you were able to, to understand in this way? Well, it, it highlighted certain, uh, certain lines in the Gospels that hadn't been highlighted before. So sure. one of them, for instance, is Jesus says, and almost no, nobody ever quotes this line. He says, I want the joy that's in me yeah. to be in you. Right. And you think like, Really? You know, because that's that's not the Christian experience I see around me a lot. You know, people, right. you know, and again, joy here, the, the, the poets call this gusto. It's, it's not it's not like, oh, I'm so blessed. You know, my wife left me. I lost my job and I'm so blessed. It's not that kind of uh, make believe happiness. It is a, a great uh, involvement with life. Uh, the thing I, I most frequently compare it to is you go to a movie and someone dies in the movie and you're sad and you weep and you're just heartbroken and you come out and somebody says, how was the movie? You go, oh, it was great. 
It was a great movie, <laughs> you know? And if you can live like that so that life is great, even though it is just crushing and tragic and painful, uh, then you're experiencing what I think of as joy. And Jesus says, I want you to have life in abundance. I want you to have the joy mm. that's in me. And, and you start to think, well, how, how is that happening? And it obviously is happening because when, when he says, love your enemy, he very specifically says, love your enemy so that you are like your father in heaven who treats everybody with love. You know, he treats yeah, everybody right. the same, everybody the same. And when you think about that, you think, oh, he wants you to see what God sees. And when you see the world and other people as God sees them, you start to feel, ah, you know, like, yes. I don't have to hate this person. I don't have to agree with them. I might have to put him in prison in a war. I might have to kill him, but I don't have to hate him. I just have to understand that he, you know, we are in this experience together and God sees us mm -hmm. and loves us both. That's transformative. That is transformative. And so the, what the poets started to realize, and this is how they put it, they started to realize that our experience, our internal experience this walking down, just walking down the street, you're just walking down the street, you're having an experience no one has ever had before. No one has ever had the experience of you walking down the street. That this experience is a collaboration of you, the creative you, and the creation. And the way Wordsworth said it, he said, you are uh, acting as an agent of the one great mind, created and creator both. And, and Coleridge, who inspired Wordsworth, said, basically, you are the miniature, I can't remember the exact words, but he said, basically, you're the miniature creation within yeah. the creation, the infinite creation of the great I am. That's a different way to look at life. It's a different yes. way to look at walking down the street, just walking down the street, you are creating an experience that's never been had before, uh, but is part of the creation. And it solves a big problem that I think all of society is having now, which is what is the value of the inner life? Um, mm. If, if you look at people, the way people talk about the inner life now, they talk about it in two absolutely contradictory ways. One is, it doesn't matter. It's your subjective experience. It doesn't mean a thing. Uh, you know, you say, you say it's wrong to oppress women, but in Saudi Arabia, they oppress women. Are you going to be a bigot and say that that culture is wrong and you're right? Uh, your your inner internal sense of morality means absolutely nothing. Uh, you have no right to make judgments. You're just It's just a power structure. Even language is just a power structure. You can't even speak and describe anything. So your inner life means nothing. On the other hand, they believe your inner life is sovereign. Yeah. So that if in the middle of this conversation, I say to you, oh, by the way, I just turned into a woman you would be a bigot to think that I'm not a woman. You know, why, what, what would on earth would make you think that I'm not a woman if I tell you that I am? So your inner life is all powerful. You know, my lived experience is, is a fact, you know? Right. What they realize is, yes, your lived experience is a fact, but it has to be done in, crea in collaboration with creation. You are mm -hmm. the part of creation that creates. And, and, and this is a, a totally new way, not totally new, sorry, but a totally different way to see the inner life than the ones we're being handed right now, which I think are very damaging and even uh, wicked in some essential way. Um, and so when you start to think like, oh, as long as, you know, I can't become a woman because I'm not, I'm made, created a man, uh, but I could have a lot of different experiences as a man. You know, I might be a Navy SEAL, but I'm not, I'm a, an artist. So that's a different yeah. kind of man. You know, it's like you have all kinds of different uh, and original things that you can be, but they have to be in collaboration with the one great mind. Yeah. And there's beauty to that, right? The, like, it's well, incredible. Yeah, yeah, totally. But that, and that's <laughs> what I love about it. Um, I think 
so what I hear you describing is this king, what I call it the kingdom of God way of, of seeing, right? Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God is near. It's here and it's not far away. Right. And, uh, that whole, that whole way of seeing the world is about so much more than will I go to heaven when I die, which is what I grew up with. Thief yes. in the night. I don't know if you ever saw that. It was filmed in my backyard. Not What's my back, literal backyard, but Thief in the Night. It was a no. it was a Jesus is coming to take everybody, you know, rapture kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh movie. But we were all terrified. And Jesus was our salvation, you know, of of to to get out of that. Which is one way to see the world. It's a terrible way to see the world. I think it's a scary way to see the world. Right. But the what I hear you describing is no, actually. God has made this world as a place for us to be. Yes, there's there's bad things in it, but there's also some really beautiful things if we grab onto his way of seeing the world, his kingdom, and just live it out. It's, a, you know, the line that uh, now is just like first and foremost in my head is the line about being a branch of his vine. So mm-hmm. you're creative, you're creating fruit is coming from your branch. But if the branch is lying on the ground, it just turns into a stick and sticks are for burning. You know, if you're on the vine, if you've got that spirit flowing through you, um, then you can bear fruit of your own, you know, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, it is the the kind of difference between my psychiatric experience and this experience was the psychiatric experience is the experience that everything is in your head. You're reacting to your sex drives. You're reacting to your history. You're reacting to all these things, but it's all coming inside your head. When you start to realize, no, 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 it's actually a communication with a a mind and spirit greater than your own and created you. Then everything starts to come to life. And, um, and yeah, it's, you know, Listen, I, I, I don't really have a theology of heaven and hell because I'm absolutely certain I know nothing about them, uh, <laughs> except that I want to go one way and not the other. You know, right. I know that. But like, um, but but I do have a theology of life, you know, a, a way to live what God wants for me now. That's the question my book starts with. What does God want from me today, this day? You know, what he gave me this talent. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to invest that talent so he gets a return on that talent? And that's like, you know, those are those are questions of dire importance. I'm constantly being asked, you know, do you think it's the end of days? I know. My answer is, my answer is like, it, it, it says right in the gospel that you do not know. I know. So why, why worry about it? You know, why did that's not my, I, and there's nothing for me to do either. You know, I don't have to press a button. You know, it's not right. <laughs> it's not like the big red end of days button. I have to hit it. You know, it's all, it's all going to be taken care of perfectly. The only thing that I have power over is my life. You know? Right. So through this, you're already kind of wrestling with God. So one of the questions I like to ask about is, have you had what I would call a dark night of the soul? John of the Cross calls it that, right? The dark night of the soul. Um, maybe the way you came to faith was long enough and wrestly enough, if I can say it that way, like that that maybe you haven't, but have you have you felt like God was far away or distant or gone through a spiritual desert since you came to faith? You, you know, it's interesting. What you said is true, that because it, it took me till I was 49 uh, to be baptized. I went down a lot of those dark roads. Yeah. Um, and, and so when I see myself, you know, which happens, I think to everybody, I think doubt is a really important function of faith, you know, that it, it makes you think like, maybe I got this wrong and let me, you know, read. But since I, since I already asked myself so many questions, uh, I see that road and I think, yeah, you know, I know where that road goes. So I don't have to go down there again. I think with all of us, the feeling of faith, 
um, can can wax strong and 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 flicker at times. Uh, but I always tell people that God is like Brazil. You know, He's there whether you believe in Him or not. So when people, you know, people say I've lost my faith, and, and I say, no, God doesn't care. You know, I mean, like, I mean, He cares for your sake, but but He's still there. You know, right. so just keep praying to Him. You know, and eventually you'll find your faith again. Because it's like, you know, it, it really is like I lost my faith in Brazil. I don't believe Brazil is there. It's like who cares? You know? <laughs> right, like, He's already there anyway. Yeah. So so I, I do feel that the long journey that I maybe I may have gotten some of that. Uh, out beforehand. Mm-hmm. Listen, you know, bad things happen. And when bad things happen, uh, your heart is can be broken, uh, you know, and, and you sit there and you just think like, I feel terrible, I feel alone. And, um, you know, those, those things ha- happen. But we're dealing with facts, you know, we're dealing with facts, either God is there or he's not. I am absolutely convinced he is. Uh, I am absolutely convinced that, um, you know, we know him through Christ because we have to know him through some human uh, form. Uh, But if Christ had never come, he would still be there and all the things that Christ exemplified in our lives would still be true. Uh, if we were born before Christ, I mean, there were plenty of, plenty of myths that kind of hinted at Christ before Christ mm-hmm. actually arrived. Um, you know, so, so I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. And in moments when I, you know, have some intellectual doubt, I kind of face them with a certain amount of, I would say a pretty strong faith that I'm going to find the answer to that, uh, to that doubt that comes up, but I don't, it doesn't stop me from dealing with them. It's just, it's just the feeling is pretty solid because it took me so long to find it. Yeah. Right. I think that makes sense. What have you learned about yourself about, and what kind of identities of God has God maybe given you that were unexpected? Um, well, first of all, you start with that uh, realization and nobody likes to talk about this, but you realize you start to with that realization of sinfulness. And, and I don't, I don't say that, in a general way, because mm-hmm. in a general way, it doesn't really mean anything. But I started with a, a sudden, bleak, black and white picture of uh, areas of cowardice, areas of dishonesty, areas of phoniness, areas of uh, hypocrisy, all those things that are part and, and how quickly uh, in a moment of stress, you can retreat into those areas, hoping to get out of some consequence uh, or other, you know, um, and and I don't think that I have done a single thing to ameliorate those, uh, but they've gotten so much better anyway. Uh, mm. God has worked on them. And the one, the one that I think is the most remarkable just happened in my life, and uh, you know, if any writers out there will know this, is, is uh, envy. Uh, writers suffer from terrible envy because yeah. other people have successes and you think, why didn't I get that? You know, I used to say, I used to love young writers because we would talk about writing. And then as we got older, we would talk about how'd you get that deal? And where, why does your agent got you that? But my agent didn't, you know, which I hated. And I, I won't claim to be free of envy, but the transform that I, I don't know, I feel pretty liberated from it. Uh, when it comes, I recognize it as, a, as something of my flesh. It has nothing to do with my heart and soul because I'm actually happy for my friends when they succeed. You know, it's just something in the flesh that kind of reacts. And it's been really liberating. It has made me so much happier. I mean, and when I say happier in that case, I mean, literally happier right. uh, because, because I have so many friends in the business and so many friends in, uh, in, in related businesses. And now I'm genuinely joyful for them when they succeed. Uh, and I can see that sometimes they, they don't feel that way about other people or even yeah. about me. And I know how painful that is. And, and God just sort of like said, yeah, you're, you're done with that. 
part of your life. Now, you know, you're, you are going to be joyful in the things that I give you and, and joyful in the things I give other people. And, and that's been absolutely wonderful. But it all began with a very bleak sense that any, that any idea of myself I had as heroic or in having integrity or being decent was basically a, a self-delusion. It was a, a lie. And, and that you think that's going to be horrible. I think it's what everybody avoids. If you listen to the way people speak about 85% of what they say is communicating to you. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You know, <laughs> right. I care about this. I care about that. And I, I suffer with this, you know, when you let that go and you say, Oh, I'm not, I'm not really that great. You know? <laughs> it's, it's incredibly liberating, especially if you're handing it over to a God who loves you and already knew the answer before you got there. You know, you just think like, Oh, you know, I don't have to, I, I don't have to hide this from you. You know, you already see into it. And, and that has been uh, genuinely transformative and liberating. Um, and you would think it just means that you can do whatever you want and be as, as garbagey as you want, but it means the opposite. It means you're free from even trying to pretend uh, to be what you're not. You know? Right. Which I think is the real joy of the gospel, right? You can, by being realistic about who you are and about all, all of the things you get to be free to do to be who you are, right? Right. Right. Yes. And 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 then and then you find you have a path. You know, you there's something you're supposed to be, and you move toward right. it. And and the the idea of traveling in the right direction is a joy in and of itself. Uh, you you don't have to be there. You know, I know your show is called Halfway There. You don't have to be all the way there. You <laughs> right. just have to be traveling in that direction. There's a difference between lo being lost at sea. And being in a storm at sea, but seeing the North Star, not you know which way you're going, is very different experience. Right. Yeah. I tell people I, I, that my halfway there is a hat tip to Bon Jovi. So. I've, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well, I, I figured if, if people went away singing "Living on a Prayer," they wouldn't forget the name of my show. <laughs> anyway, uh, Andrew, thank you so much. I th this is so much profundity here. I just love it. It it uh, definitely is the kind of stories that I love to hear. People can find you at andrewclavin.com. Uh, and the book is The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. You can get that wherever you get books. It's out already. Um, and I, of course, have links at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Andrew, is there anything you want to leave us with? No, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I, I just, uh, I guess, I guess the one thing is I, when I wrote the, this book, The Truth and Beauty, I, I thought a lot about people who, who know they need Christ in their lives and even know that they should believe but can't quite bring themselves uh, to believe. And that's that. I, I see that a lot, especially in young people. They, they know that God is the answer. They know that Christ is the answer, but they, this, they're in this atmosphere of unbelief. And I think that, if anything, if I can do anything, I'd like to dispel that atmosphere, the idea that that, that, is that default setting of, of unbelief has anything to do with the truth because it doesn't. Yeah. Well, there you go, friends. So it's graduation season. This book might make a really great gift. <laughs> there you go. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks.